You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 99, Declaring Independence. Last week, we looked at the politics and voting for independence. Today, I want to take a closer look at the drafting of the document itself. Most people regard the Declaration of Independence, along with the U.S. Constitution, as probably the most important documents from the founding of the United States. The Declaration is America's birth certificate, marking not only the date our country was founded, but providing an explanation as to why it should be founded. The radical language of the document was so controversial that the U.S. State Department at one time banned its distribution at certain embassies, lest it encourage other countries to revolt against their leaders. As I said last week, in June 1776, after Richard Henry Lee introduced the resolution from Virginia that these united colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. Congress put off a debate on that question so delegates could work with their local governments to get approval. While some were trying to build on the political consensus, Congress created a committee to begin drafting the actual declaration so that they would be ready if and when the colonies gave their approval. The declaration committee consisted of John Adams of Massachusetts, whom I've already discussed a lot already, Benjamin Franklin, who also supported independence, but who came from Pennsylvania which was still instructing its delegates to oppose it. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, who supported independence, Robert Livingston of New York, who opposed independence, and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, who also seemed to support independence. Jefferson had just returned to Philadelphia a few weeks earlier, following the death of his mother. He was one of the younger and quieter members of Congress, but also had a reputation as a good and effective writer. The committee discussed the matter and decided to have Jefferson put together a first draft. At the time, no one really thought that drafting the Declaration itself would be a big deal. That's probably why they dumped the job on Jefferson as a junior member. The big deal was voting for independence, not the actual wording on the piece of paper. It would only be decades later, when Jefferson used it to his political advantage, that the draft of the document took on more importance. Also, to be fair, Jefferson's ability to lay out the cause for independence in such an articulate and elegant way lent itself to raising the importance of the document. Many years later, John Adams reminisced about the circumstances of drafting the Declaration. Now, you have to remember, at the time Adams wrote this, 
Adams and Jefferson had been political rivals for many years, and Adams always seemed to resent how much credit Jefferson had received for his contribution to the Declaration. So Adams may have had cause to make himself sound more gracious and involved in the draft than he may actually have been. In a letter, Adams to Thomas Pickering, dated August 6, 1822, Adams wrote, You may inquire why so young a man as Mr. Jefferson was placed at the head of the committee for preparing the Declaration of Independence. I answer, it was the Frankfurt advice to place Virginia at the head of everything. Mr. Richard Henry Lee might be gone to Virginia to his sick family, for aught I know, but that was not the reason of Mr. Jefferson's appointment. There were three committees appointed at the same time, one for the Declaration of Independence, another for preparing Articles of Confederation, and another for preparing a treaty to be proposed to France. Mr. Lee was chosen for the Committee of Confederation, and it was not thought convenient that the same person should be upon both. Mr. Jefferson came to Congress in June 1775 and brought with him a reputation for literature, science, and a happy talent of composition. Writings of his were handed about, remarkable for the peculiar felicity of expression. Though a silent member in Congress, he was so prompt, frank, explicit, and decisive upon committees and in conversations, not even Samuel Adams was more so, that he soon seized upon my heart, and upon this occasion I gave him my vote, and did all in my power to procure the votes of others. I think he had one more vote than any other, and that placed him at the head of the committee. I had the next highest number, and that placed me the second. The committee met, discussed the subject, and then appointed Mr. Jefferson and me to make the draft, I suppose because we were the first two on the list. The subcommittee met. Jefferson proposed to me to make the draft. I said, I will not. You should do it. Oh, no. Why will you not? You ought to do it. I will not. Why? Reasons enough. What can be your reasons? Reason first. You are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. Reason second. I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. You are very much otherwise. Reason third. You can write ten times better than I can. Well, said Jefferson, if you are decided, I will do as well as I can. Very well. When you have drawn it up, we will have a meeting. A meeting we accordingly had and conned the paper over. I was delighted with its high tone and the flights of oratory with which it abounded, especially that concerning Negro slavery, which though I knew his southern brethren would never suffer to pass in Congress, I certainly never would oppose. There were other expressions which I would not have inserted if I had drawn it up, particularly calling the king tyrant. I thought this too personal, for I never believed George to be a tyrant in disposition and in nature. I always believed him to be deceived by his courtiers on both sides of the Atlantic and in his official capacity, only cruel. I thought the expression too passionate, and too much like scolding, for so grave and solemn a document. But, as Franklin and Sherman were to inspect it afterwards, I thought it would not become me to strike it out. I consented to report it, 
and do not now remember that I made or suggested a single alteration. We reported it to the Committee of Five. It was read, and I do not remember that Franklin or Sherman criticized anything. We were all in haste. Congress was impatient, and the instrument was reported, as I believe, in Jefferson's handwriting as he first drew it. Congress cut off about a quarter of it, as I expected they would, but they obliterated some of the best of it and left all that was exceptionable, if anything in it was. I have long wondered that the original draft had not been published. I suppose the reason is the vehement Philippic against Negro slavery. As you justly observe, there is not an idea in it but what had been hackneyed in Congress for two years before. The substance of it is contained in the Declaration of Rights and the violation of those rights in the Journals of Congress in 1774. Indeed, the essence of it is contained in a pamphlet voted and printed by the town of Boston before the first Congress met, composed by James Otis, as I suppose in one of his lucid intervals, and pruned and polished by Samuel Adams. Notice that last paragraph where Adams takes a jab at Jefferson about how unoriginal the Declaration was. Many of Jefferson's opponents had criticized Jefferson's lack of originality and the fact that he borrowed heavily from other contemporary writings. Jefferson responds to this criticism by agreeing with it. In a letter from Thomas Jefferson to Henry Lee, dated May 8, 1825, he says, This was the object of the Declaration of Independence. Not to find out new principles or new arguments, never before thought of, not merely to say things which had never been said before, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject, in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent, and to justify ourselves in the independent stand which we are compelled to take, neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular and previous writing. It was intended to be an expression of the American mind, and to give that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. Jefferson claims he did not rely on any particular documents while writing the Declaration, but at the same time he was doing that, he was in regular correspondence with colleagues in Virginia who were writing the Constitution and Bill of Rights for the state of Virginia. In fact, Jefferson was kind of upset because the more senior members of the Virginia delegation had returned to Virginia for this important topic, and he was stuck in Philadelphia doing what he considered side work. He was also sending suggestions to his friends in Virginia about what should be included in the new Constitution, so of course all of that had to be on his mind while writing the Declaration. As a result, we see a great many similarities between these documents. According to Adams's later account, Jefferson finished his first draft in just a day or two. Jefferson then had Adams and Franklin look at it before introducing it to the full committee. The committee made a few changes to Jefferson's draft, but largely sent it to Congress as written. Congress, however, would want to make more changes. On June 28th, the committee submitted the declaration to Congress for review. As I said, Congress made quite a number of edits. One of the most famous, or infamous, was the removal of a section condemning the king for the institution of slavery. 
he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur a miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce. And that this assemblage of horrors, which might want no fact of undistinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. In the end, Congress removed this section. Sure, some colonies had attempted to end or limit the slave trade, and the Privy Council in London did not allow it. But many colonies happily supported slavery. Many have pointed to the removal of this paragraph as the height of hypocrisy. A document proclaiming the inalienable rights of man should not remove a passage condemning slavery. But the reality was that the king never forced slavery on the colonists. The colonists had willingly participated. Condemning the king for making them have slaves just seemed a little too far-fetched. Beyond that, there certainly was a hypocrisy among many delegates who supported the principles of equality and inalienable rights, but who had no interest in extending those rights to the slaves who worked for them. Congress made other changes to wording, some to make the other delegates happy, others to improve the flow of the document. Jefferson was not happy about all the changes to his work. He sent many letters to friends with his original draft, asking them whether they preferred his version or the final version. Congress continued to make a few minor alterations and deletions on July 2nd, 3rd, and the morning of the 4th. Late in the morning of July 4th, Congress approved the final wording of the Declaration. At the end of the day, on July 4th, the draft committee took the manuscript copy to John Dunlop, official printer to the Congress. Now keep in mind, what went to the printer was still a draft copy. The final engrossed copy did not exist yet. Mr. Dunlop apparently worked through the night, making an estimated 150 to 200 copies of the Declaration for distribution. On the morning of July 5th, Congress began distributing copies to various committees, assemblies, and to the commanders of the Continental Troops. The first public announcement came on Friday, July 5th, when a German-language paper in Philadelphia apparently scooped everyone to announce that Congress had adopted the Declaration. The next day, July 6th, the Philadelphia Evening Post published the full text of the Declaration. The first known public reading did not come until Monday, July 8th, when Colonel John Nixon of the Philadelphia Committee of Safety read the declaration to a crowd in front of Independence Hall. According to local lore, and some have questioned its authenticity, 
the State House bell rang all day in celebration. That bell later became known as the Liberty Bell. That same day, public readings took place in Easton, Pennsylvania, and Trenton, New Jersey. On July 9th, George Washington assembled his army in New York and read the Declaration to the soldiers and assembled civilians. It provoked such excitement that a mob formed to tear down a statue of King George III. Later, they melted the lead from the statue to make bullets to fire back at the British Army. About two weeks after its famous vote, Congress finally received word that New York had finally authorized its delegates to support independence. Congress made one final change to the wording of the Declaration, adding one more line to the beginning of the document, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. It was only then that Congress ordered a formal engrossed copy that all delegates could sign. There is some question as to who actually wrote the words on the parchment that we today consider the original Declaration of Independence. Based on handwriting analysis, most historians believe that the draftsman was Timothy Matlack of Pennsylvania. Matlack was, at the time, a clerk to the secretary of the Second Continental Congress, Charles Thompson. With the engrossed copy complete, Congress laid out that copy for signing on August 2nd. John Hancock famously signed his name the largest and in the top center. Several members who had approved the declaration were absent. George Wythe signed on August 27th. On September 4th, Richard Henry Lee, Elbridge Gerry, and Oliver Walcott signed. Matthew Thornton signed on November 19th. Delaware Delegate Thomas McKean did not sign at all in 1776. It's not clear exactly when he got around to signing, but it's possible that he may not have even signed it until 1781. He had a good excuse for some delay. After voting for independence, McKean took up a command of militia to march to New York to defend against the British invasion. But he was back in Congress by 1777, and it's unclear why he did not get around to signing it for another four years. Two delegates, John Dickinson and Robert Livingston, who, remember, was on the committee to draft the document, never signed the declaration at all. Another delegate from Pennsylvania, Robert Morris, who had opposed independence in debate, signed anyway, saying, I am not one of those politicians that run testy when my own plans are not adopted. I think it is the duty of a good citizen to follow when he cannot lead. Several other delegates, who were not present for voting on independence, nevertheless signed it at a later date. No one from the Continental Congress, nor anyone else from the Patriot side, ever bothered to send a copy to the King, or anyone else in London for that matter. Admiral Howe and General Howe, at the time with the British fleets off the coast of New York, sent two copies of the original Dunlap version back to London. One was with a letter dated July 28th, the other dated August 11th. The letters don't say how exactly the British Army received them, but it does say they fell into their hands by accident. The declaration was not a petition, nor was it specifically directed to any officials. It was a declaration to the world that the former British colonies in North America 
were now free and independent states. As such, they had no duty to inform anyone in London about their activities. Now, I'll go into some more detail next week about the wording of the Declaration itself. Congress made all sorts of declarations that have not been so memorable and repeated. While the significance of independence was a big leap, many delegates to the Continental Congress did not consider the document itself to be that big a deal. As I said, they considered the vote for independence to be the big deal, but the exact wording of the document, not so much. It was, of course, Jefferson's brilliant wording that made it such a memorable document. When I quoted Jefferson a few minutes ago, he himself admitted that he was not putting down new ideas on paper. While he summarized the sentiment quite eloquently, these were ideas that almost everyone in Congress already believed. It was this widely held consensus that Jefferson sought to articulate in summary fashion. As widely accepted as the principles were in America, however, these ideas were shocking to many in Europe. Sure, many social contract theorists had spoken about these ideas in abstract, but no one in Europe had seriously considered removing their monarchy and replacing it with a republic that would better implement the will of the people. What made the document such a milestone in world history was the combination of being an articulate explanation of those ideals that were so radical to European ears, along with the fact that Americans were actually in the process of implementing those ideas into a real government. This was the concept that made the revolution so revolutionary. It seems, though, that no one at the time seemed even to dream of its future impact on the world. For the moment, they saw it as an important document that formally announced the goal of independence and which would hopefully assist in the war effort. Next week, we'll take a closer examination of the actual words in the Declaration and what they mean. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to the book, I want to remind everyone to check out my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. There you can find a complete transcript of every episode, 
along with pictures, maps, and links to more information. I list a number of books, both free online books and pay books, as well as useful websites that can point you toward a lot more information on each week's episode. I use many different sources for each episode beyond the ones I mention in my recommendations, so if you want to read more, please check out the bottom of each episode at my blog. Today I focused on the actual drafting of the Declaration. In doing so, I relied heavily on recollections by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson that were written decades later. After both men had completed their presidencies, they spent a great deal of time writing and corresponding about the events of the Revolution. The recollections of old men writing about events nearly 50 years prior, even if they did not have political motives for shading the truth, are suspect at best. Yet for much of this, it really is the only record we have. I want to recommend two books today. Both are pretty short. Combined, both books are less than 300 pages. The first one is What Did the Declaration Declare? Edited by Joseph Ellis. Of course, Ellis is a well-known writer with nearly a dozen best-selling books related to this era. This book is not one of those bestsellers, nor did Ellis write most of it. This is a book that appears to have been written for school students. It is a series of shorter works by various authors focusing on the philosophical roots of the Declaration and Jefferson's role in drafting it. One of the authors is Dumas Malone, who wrote one of the earliest comprehensive works on the topic way back in the early 19th century. Malone's own book, The Story of the Declaration of Independence, has been republished many times and is available for download on archive.org as well as many other places. Personally, I have the Bicentennial Edition, which I enjoy very much. Ellis also included a piece by Pauline Mayer, who is the author of my book recommendation for next week. As I said, What Did the Revolution Declare is a short book with a variety of perspectives on the intellectual history of the Declaration of Independence. Even though it is made up of many smaller works, the total of the book barely breaks 100 pages, so it's really not a lengthy read. It first came out in 1994 and has been republished since then. If it interests you, you may want to check out Ellis's book. Again, it's called What Did the Declaration Declare? The second book I want to recommend is called The Fourth of July and the Founding of America by Peter Debola. This is a fun little book that gives a decent description of events that led to the 4th of July holiday. The bulk of the book talks about the symbolism and mythology that has grown into our celebration of that event. The author, Debola, has written a few other books, but nothing else related to the revolution. The book, first published in 2007, is a short one, not even breaking 200 pages. It's a pretty light read, but, you know, maybe interesting for the summer. Finally today, I want to give my online recommendation of the week to another podcast. I'm a longtime fan of Ben Franklin's World, hosted by Liz Covart. This is an interview-style podcast where Liz talks to a wide range of experts on any issue related to the 18th century. I put a link on this week's blog entry for an episode where Liz speaks with three different experts on drafting the Declaration of Independence. There are hundreds of engaging podcast episodes, a great backlog if you have not been following it already. 
check it out at www.benfranklinsworld.com or on iTunes or wherever you obtain your podcasts. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for our 100th episode of the American Revolution Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.